Coming up on Tech Nation, we hear from Dr. Andrew Steele about Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. Then, with heart transplants from genetically modified pigs in the news, kidneys are also in the works. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft brings us up to date on treating kidney disease. And with the west coast of the United States under tsunami warning, former USGS scientist Dr. Lucy Jones talks about how natural disasters have shaped history and how we need to approach the aftermath. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2011, I interviewed Dr. Parag Khanna, an economist and the author of How to Run the World, charting a course to the next renaissance. I noted that another economist had been a guest on Tech Nation. That would be Nobel laureate Dr. Mohammed Yunus. He believed that poverty need not exist. In fact, it would someday be in a museum as an artifact of how we used to live. I asked Parag Khanna, do you agree with him? I do agree with him because it's not about money. Poverty is not about money. Poverty is about mechanisms. It's about needs. It's about having your basic Maslowian needs, uh, shelter, water, food, these types of things, having those needs met. And we do have the resources to allow people, to empower them, to enable them to meet those needs. Not give it so, to them, empower them. And that's the big difference. Giving someone something is a one-off thing. That's how you help people. What I argue in this book is that you need to help people help themselves. Teach a man to fish. Very ancient principle. Very obvious one as well. That's how you create a self-sustaining kind of system. That's how you allow local communities to be resilient. If poverty alleviation depends on having all of the resources in the World Bank and them allocating money whenever they have the attention to do so and whenever the money makes it through the fingers of bureaucrats, that's not resilience. It's interesting as well in, in hearing you describe this vision because Dr. Yunus also said if you want to make all the nations equal on the health front, because don't forget, it's a very few countries who hold all the patents on the drugs. It's a very few countries who create a lot of this medical innovation that you've got to be able to enable all the countries to create on a world-class scale. And then they're trading innovation, not just commodity. And one of the things that the Gates Foundation is doing is actually training African universities to have centers that actually develop and produce low-cost seeds and pesticide-resistant strains of seeds and things like this. These are very important innovations that can be made, produced, manufactured in the developing world, in the poorer countries, and then they can also provide for themselves. So again, it's about mechanisms, not so much about money. So legal things like uh, patent uh, regulation, but also technological things. I mean, telemedicine, for example, allows doctors in Canada and the United States to deliver at least healthcare guidance and advice to patients in, in all over the world at almost no cost. And on the face of it, it seems like a very simple notion. But let's take the African universities and researchers developing genetically modified seeds. At least six African countries refuse to have anything genetically modified, no matter how difficult it is, number one. And number two, we have the World Trade Organization saying, wait a minute, if you want to be a member, and many of them are not, then you've got to subscribe to our idea of what patents are all about. I mean, this is a 
you've got to do more than just create the innovation. Well, you know, the World Trade Organization is a very important case study in the sense that it has been so important in the last uh, uh, 50, 60 years in promoting uh, global trade and bringing down trade barriers and harmonizing regulations. World trade has expanded so astronomically since the end of World War II, and it owes itself largely, uh, to a large degree, to the role of the World Trade Organization. But today, you haven't had progress in World Trade Organization negotiations, such as the Doha Development Round, for almost a decade. And yet, world trade is growing, again, tremendously. The reason is because countries want it. Everyone wants to be part of global trade. So even if you didn't have any more World Trade Organization breakthroughs ever for the rest of our lives, you would still have deepening and expanding global trade. You know what we're experiencing right now? We're experiencing the globalization of globalization. Because what we've called globalization has really only been 15 or 20 countries that represent 80 to 90% of world trade. We're expanding that circle now. Countries are getting involved. Brazil and Latin America are trading with Africa. China is trading with Africa. Asians are trading with Latin Americans. It's all globalizing now. And it's happening even without some kind of central arbiter mechanism like the WTO. You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with economist Dr. Parag Khanna about his book, how to Run the World, Charting a Course to the Next Renaissance. He's written a number of books since then. The most recent was published in 2019, The Future is Asian, published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dr. Andrew Steele gives us more insight into what it means to age. He's here with Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. Then, advances in treating kidney disease with Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft. And with the west coast of the United States under tsunami warning, former USGS scientist Dr. Lucy Jones warns us there is a bigger picture after natural disasters. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Andrew Steele. Andrew, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the chat. Now, anytime someone tells me they have a new science, I get excited. I mean, what is this new science of getting older without getting old? Why is it new? Well, it's new because I think for a very long time, biologists thought that aging was just some irreducibly complex thing. You know, they thought it was this inevitable, gradual process of falling apart, it happens to all living creatures. But what's really happened over the last sort of 10 or 20 years, we've really got to a point where scientists are starting to build a consensus about what it is that's going on in our bodies as we get older. We've got a collection of what are called the hallmarks of aging, these 10 processes that I break down in the book. There are all the different reasons that our cells, our molecules, our 
organs, our tissues, everything from the smallest to the largest scales in our bodies basically goes wrong in a variety of different ways. And because we've got this categorization system, I'm not going to say it's perfect. I'm not going to say it necessarily catches absolutely everything. But at the same time, it gives us a framework that we can work with. And what that means is having identified the things that change as we get older, we can potentially come up with biological ways to fix those things. And so that's why it's a new science, because we're finally at a point where things are starting to leave the lab and actually enter clinical trials. We're starting to think about the idea of slowing down or even reversing aging in humans. Now, what's the difference between aging and longevity? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I think probably the best way to answer that is just to define aging. And I'm not going to define it biologically in terms of those 10 hallmarks. You know, we can get to that. But what I'd like to do is come up with a statistical definition for aging. And I think the easiest way to do that is to think about how fast your risk of death increases with time. So obviously, all of us know that older people are more likely to die. But just how much really shocked me. So um, I'm 36 at the moment. And what that means is that my chance of dying, not making my 37th birthday this year, is about one in a thousand. And I quite like those odds because that would mean if that were to continue for the rest of my life, I'd live into my thousand and thirties on average. But of course, that isn't what happens. And humans risk of death doubles about every eight years. So if I'm lucky enough to make it into my 90s, but unlucky enough that medical technology hasn't moved on in the intervening time, my odds of, for example, at the age of 91, not making my 92nd birthday would be about one in six. That's life and death at the roll of a dice. So clearly, (laughs) there's this exponential growth in risk of death. And so we can use that as a sort of statistical proxy for aging. So when we talk about um, whether a creature or a person ages, we can think about how quickly their risk of death doubles. And obviously, the slower that risk of death doubles, the longer they're going to live. And so we can look into the animal kingdom and see that this idea of a risk of death that changes with time isn't inevitable. So the reason there's a tortoise on the cover of the book is because they've got a property called negligible senescence. And that means they have a risk of death that's constant with time. And that means, firstly, they can live a very long time. But what's most exciting about it isn't necessarily that they can make it to their 170th birthday. It's the fact that they don't age in the process. Wow. <laughs> oh, That's a I big feel revelation. Like that risk. I'm 36 too. <laughs> Don't look on the internet. I'm 36 as well. <laughs> and I like the one in a thousand uh, odds, which is why I'm claiming to be 36. C- clinging onto that age. Yeah, definitely. Clinging, clinging. Now, there's no disease called aging. You can't file a drug application with the FDA saying, I'm solving the disease of aging. Mm. So let's parse it down the elements, why we age. Uh, and let's start with uh, DNA damage and mutations. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is probably the most fundamental of the hallmarks, and that's because it concerns our DNA. And our DNA is, of course, the instruction manual that we find at the centre of every one of our cells. It's uh, an instruction manual made up of just four letters, A, T, C, and G, different chemicals that are strung along in this incredibly long sequence. There are three billion letters in a human genome, so a full human DNA sequence. And, of course, what can happen as you go through life is that you can get typos in this instruction manual. So various different things, uh, you know, aggressive molecules or UV radiation or all kinds of different stuff in our environment and actually an awful lot of things just going on in the regular sort of happenings inside our cells can damage your dna and if that damage gets repaired incorrectly you can get what's called a mutation and that's just basically as i said a typo a spelling mistake in that instruction manual now a lot of these typos aren't going to make any difference they're just going to happen in a random place it's not particularly important for the functioning of that particular cell and everything will be fine but just occasionally one will happen in a really important spot and actually probably the most famous thing that a lot of people will have heard of that's caused by these mutations is cancer so if you get mutations in the wrong combination of genes you can turn off the mechanisms that stop a cell growing when it should stop you can turn on mechanisms that can really encourage it to grow even though there's no particular reason for it to do so and if you get 
it's on average about nine or 10 mutations in most cancers. And that can be enough to allow it to exit the normal sort of pattern of cell behavior and grow indefinitely and turn into a tumor. And actually, we think that uh, this damage to our DNA, as well as causing cancer, which is obviously an age-related disease, can also affect the sort of broader aging process as well. Now, let's talk about trimmed telomeres. What are they? So on the ends of your DNA, this is, and this is quite a strange thing to think about. So inside your cells, uh, your DNA is split up into lengths called chromosomes. And you might have heard of the X and the Y chromosomes that decide whether we're you know, male or female at birth. But there are also there are 23 pairs of chromosomes in the middle of every one of our cells. These are sort of individual strings of DNA. And the nature of a string is it's got an end. And in order to protect the ends of our DNA from various different things, uh, our bodies decide to cap those pieces of DNA with what are called telomeres. And these are essentially thousands of DNA letters repeating over and over again. So it's the same pattern, TTAGGG, TTAGGG, so and so on, so on, so on. And the reason that these exist, there are a variety of different sort of problems they're solving. But the primary one when it comes to aging is the fact that when your cells divide, it has to copy all of that DNA. Every cell has to have a copy of the instruction manual, otherwise it's not going to be able to, you know, it's not going to have any instructions, it's not going to know what to do. And so in order to make that copy, your cell has to duplicate the entire genome. But there's a small problem with this, which is that as your DNA is duplicated, it's not possible to duplicate the very last bit of that chromosome, the very last sort of length of that string. And so you might think, you know, maybe your body would come up with a smarter way to duplicate its DNA. But actually what evolution has done, and this is, you know, evolution comes up with solutions that are good enough. It doesn't necessarily come up with the best possible solution. And the solution that evolution has come up with is just to have this repeated nonsense effectively at the end of the DNA. And that means that if you lose a little bit of it, it doesn't really matter. It just gets a little bit shorter. The telomeres become trimmed, as you were asking about. And so that what that means is that over time, in all of our bodies, our cells are constantly dividing to replace cells that are being lost. You know, for example, your skin, you're constantly having flakes of skin come off their skin cells. And so as that uh, sort of top layer of the skin falls off, the bottom layer of the skin is growing and reproducing. Those cells are dividing in order to replace that skin. So there's this constant process of turnover. And that means the telomeres in the stem cells that generate your skin are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And so eventually, after, you know, after you've been alive for a few decades, those telomeres get so short that can start to cause problems. And so it's thought this sort of molecular, tiny scale aging of the individual cells is one of the things that causes the aging of the body as a whole. Now, often we hear that, well, how long did your parents live, your grandparents live? Their genetics will help you. Is this part of what will help you? It's interesting. It is and it isn't. I think that a lot of us sort of imagine that there's a lot of um, what's called genetic determinism by biologists. So, you know, effectively you're given your genes at birth and that can dictate all kinds of things. Obviously, your hair and your eye colour are very genetically determined, but maybe it can determine your, all your future health and your future personality and all kinds of things. And actually, a lot of this genetic determinism isn't really true. What? And ageing is a place where... Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> ageing is a place where it definitely isn't the case for most people. It's, so it's, it's, it's sort of a little bit um, a little bit of a complicated thing. So if you've got parents who lived into their 70s or their 80s or something like that, you know, they lived a fairly normal life expectancy. Not a huge amount of their, their longevity is transmitted to you. And that means it's all to play for. So the best studies, and there's a bit of controversy about this because it depends a little on how you do the maths, but they suggest that between 5 and 25% of longevity is heritable. So it's passed down, you know, from parent to child. And that's not a lot. That means that, you know, even on the sort of larger end of that estimate scale, then 80% or so of how long you live is down to lifestyle and down to luck and obviously we can't do much about luck but lifestyle is all to play for so that's you know, very much something that's within your control to a large extent however the place where suddenly genetics can be really influential is in people who live a lot longer than 70 or 80 years old so if you've got a parent or a sibling who makes it to 100 then you've got a 10 times greater chance of doing so 
than the general population. And what that suggests is that these extreme longevity scenarios are genetically determined. There are some sort of special genes that are going on in there and scientists are picking through the genomes of these centenarians who make it to 100, super centenarians who make it to 110 especially, to try and work out what protective genes they have that are allowing them to live these exceptionally long and and exceptionally healthy lifespans. Now, a number of grandparents that we know of, we don't know beyond that, frankly, very much, uh, live to 92, 94, 96. Mm -hmm. Is that long enough to make a difference? I think the older you get, the more, the older your grandparents get, I should say, the more excited you should be. So, you know, if your grandparents made it to 95, that's a good start. If they made it to 100, that's even better. If they made it beyond 100, you know, you're, you're already cooking with gas at this point. Um, it's not as though there's a hard line. It's not as though if you make, you know, make it to 92, then suddenly that's all genetics and 91 is no longer. But um, yeah, it's, it's clearly the case that as you get more and more extreme, sort of weirder, you know, in a good way, obviously, then genetics seems to have a larger and larger influence. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Andrew Steele, a former research fellow at the Francis Crick Institute in London. He's here today with Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. Let's talk about protein problems. We know we're protein machines, DNA, RNA, protein. This just keeps going on all the time in our bodies. And let's talk about uh, two of them. The first is, is it called autophagy? I say autophagy, but I think with your American accent, you can get away with a lot. (laughs) I don't have an accent. You have an accent. Okay. Yeah, very true. Autophagy, or however you pronounce it. Very good, yeah. Autophagy. Autophagy. Yes, it's auto, (laughs) A-U-T-O, and then phagy, P-H-A-G-Y. This has a relationship to Parkinson's. What is it and how does it relate to Parkinson's? So autophagy, and it's good that we spelled it out because auto means self and phagy means eating. And so what this means is it's a program of self-eating. And what it really means is that cells do this thing where they recycle the proteins that are inside of them. And this is something that the cells often do when there's not enough nutrition around. So, you know, if, for example, you've been fasting for a day or two and, you know, in the evolutionary environment, this would have been pretty common because you might not have had ready access to food at all times as we do in the modern world. Then what your cells do is rather than taking in the sort of fresh raw materials from your food, they have to make do with what they've got. And so they recycle the proteins that they have inside them to create new proteins. And the proteins are, of course, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, the molecular machines that drive so, so many different processes inside that biology. And so imagine, you know, you haven't got a ready source of raw materials. They will break down some old proteins and make them into new ones. And it turns out that when your body does that, it preferentially breaks down proteins that are older or they, they're broken or they're you know, damaged in some way. And what that therefore means is that if you have more autophagy, it seems to slow down the aging process. And this was actually first discovered because it was related, as I, as I sort of mentioned just now, to fasting or to reducing the amount that animals eat. And this was one of the first phenomena that was shown to massively slow down the aging process. So back in the 1930s, experiments with rats showed that rats that were eating less than their counterparts who were allowed to eat what they liked, uh, they lived longer and they lived longer in much better health and to get diseases a lot later as well. And we now think one of the reasons for that is that this autophagy process removes some of the sort of gunk that's uh, accumulating in your cells as you grow older. And, you know, it's worth mentioning something like Parkinson's or you know, maybe even other neurodegenerative disorders as well seem to have a relationship with autophagy. And that's basically because your brain is just such an active organ. It's constantly doing stuff. You know, it uses 20% of the energy in our bodies in spite of being this tiny little sort of lump of jelly in our heads. And as a result, if there's a breakdown in this autophagy process, then there can be a buildup of all kinds of different proteins. And what that can then mean is that can go on to cause these neurodegenerative diseases. So not just Parkinson's, also Alzheimer's and the like, dementia? 
Yeah, well, I think that, I mean there's there's a lot of head scratching going on at the moment as to what exactly causes Alzheimer's, but it's it certainly seems to be that there's there's a relationship with autophagy. The Parkinson's one is particularly scientifically obvious, I guess, because there are certain um, genetic mutations that can predispose you to Parkinson's that relate to autophagy, so they make your autophagy slightly less effective, and that can increase your chance of Parkinson's. But I think you know with, with, with Alzheimer's, there's been this sort of long running hypothesis in, in the field that it's caused by a misfolded protein called beta amyloid, but that hypothesis in recent years has been um, you know, basically having holes blown in it left, right, and center because there have been a number of drugs that have been very effective at clearing out this misfolded protein, this beta amyloid. But what they found is that although we can remove most of it from the brain, it doesn't seem to actually improve people's symptoms. So the real question is exactly what causes it, and autophagy is definitely one of the top contenders, I'd say. Well, you said two things that I want to talk to you about. One is the business of, well, you have a lot of autophagy going on. Oh, and I got me saying it that way. I don't know about this, Andrew. Uh, the, uh, you have a lot of this autophagy going on uh, when you are, for instance, spending long periods without food. Your body really wants that. Mm. Uh, and you can, if you keep this up, you can live much longer and much healthier. On the other hand, uh, do we know how happy the mice were that were eating whatever they wanted versus the ones who were always hungry? I mean, you'd have to be ha- literally happy to be hungry. There's this uh, uh, sort of running joke in the aging biology community that says that dietary restriction might not actually make you live any longer, but it'll certainly feel like longer. And I think you know that really speaks to this dilemma that we've got here. I love food, and it's very, very difficult. If you look at the evidence, we've got really great evidence that dietary restriction works in rats, it works in mice, it works in fruit flies, it works in worms, it works in all kinds of different animals. But the real sort of head scratcher is, does it work in humans? So the closest experiment we've got to actual human beings is we've done this in rhesus monkeys, and it's a very complicated thing we could do a whole podcast on the results of a couple of experiments that were uh, trying to look into how it worked on in, in the monkeys but basically the results were a little bit ambiguous they seem to live healthier but they don't necessarily live longer and the sort of perfect study you'd like to see in humans is you know we have some kind of dietary restriction or we have some fasting diet and we get people and we start them on it maybe you know after after puberty for example and we carry on for the next 50 60 70 80 years even if you know longer if it works and the short-term experiments show that people's health you know things like their blood markers do tend to improves they get better blood test results basically but the real question is you know do those better blood test results translate into longer lifespan and we really just don't know the answer to that question and that makes it very very hard as um you know as someone who as i say you know loves his food to advocate for this particular kind of diet because firstly we don't know if it's going to make you live any longer and secondly there are all these side effects the people who try these kinds of diets well firstly they report the hunger never goes away you might think that you get used to it you know maybe after a few months you've been cutting back on the calories for so long the hunger stops but it doesn't there's risks of things like anemia uh thinner bones is something that's you know you need to look out for so you sort of need to do these things in conjunction with your doctor there's also a risk to your immunity so it might be that you know perhaps these mice live longer in the cosseted pathogen free environment of the lab out here in the messy real world that we humans have to live in you know it's no point um, effectively you know aging more slowly if you just die of flu or die of coronavirus because your immune system is that much weaker and um, people feel cold all the time it, it dec- decreases people's libido so there are just these huge sort of laundry list of issues and basically i think you know it's definitely good to eat a healthy balanced diet but whether i'd say take that further and try and restrict your calories restrict the other things that you might be able to cut back on the jury's really still out on that this is a, a similar question in the sense that if you are deprived of food and and this may be a natural cause throughout your lifetime hmm. um this is putting stress on your body but modern society even with all your food and medical care and everything there are times and sometimes long times of stress 
people are going through loss of loved ones, divorces, uh, loss of home, you name it. This is modern stress. Do we know if that has an effect on your longevity? It's a really fascinating question. And I I think the answer, based on the evidence we have, is probably yes. But it's very, very hard to disentangle these various different factors. So to, say, to take one example, we know that people who have more stressful childhoods tend to have shorter telomeres than people who don't. So that's a you know, very simple biological measure. And we know that having you know more rapidly shortening telomeres is correlated with reduced life expectancy and is correlated with various different diseases. However, that correlation isn't very tight. It's not like, you know, if someone's telomeres are 10% shorter, they're doomed. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's very difficult to actually extrapolate that out to the wider aging process. The other sort of lines of evidence we have are that basically people who are poorer, people who live in poorer parts of, uh, of, of countries, tend to have shorter life expectancies than people who live in the richer parts. And some of that will probably be driven by stress. But the hard thing is just to disentangle all those different lifestyle factors, because people who are poorer, they tend to have less time to exercise. They might smoke or drink more than people who are in wealthier socioeconomic groups. So it's just really, really hard to tease out all of these factors. And again, it's a bit like the calorie restriction we were just discussing. The optimal experiment here would be to get a thousand people and really stress 500 of them out for 30 years and see which of them die first and which of them contract age-related disease which obviously isn't an experiment we want to sort of you know route we want to go down from a sort of ethical a practical perspective it's an absolute minefield so i think probably based on the evidence that we can see it's safe to say that stress is a bad thing and frankly you know it's just even if i'm going to live exactly the same amount of time i'd rather do that with a reduction in my stress so i think you know there's a pretty good argument for trying to cut it back and i don't think it's going to improve your lifestyle being stressed so all in all the jury's probably still out if we're going to want absolute scientific certainty but at the same time less stress is probably good well there's here's a few things and there are more than this than we're talking about today this accumulation of senescent cells and i love this word i love how it sounds senescence senescence uh not so good what it means it's that the cells of older people are different from the cells of younger people. Yeah, so senescence is just the biological word for ageing or oldness. And these cells were first discovered in a Petri dish back in the 1960s. A guy called Leonard Hayflick was watching these cells divide in the dish. And he noticed that after a certain number of divisions, it was about 50 in the case of the cells he was using, they'd stopped dividing. And most importantly, they just looked weird. Like, I'm not a microscope-based cell biologist by any stretch. I was a computational biologist, so you know, I never really set foot in the lab. And yet, you look down a microscope, you can see, um, they call it the fried egg phenotype. So they go from having this beautiful round shape and looking very ordered to having this sort of splat with the cell nucleus in the middle and they just look entirely different in morphology to the other cells in the dish and so there was obviously this speculation that maybe if these cells age you know if they, they divide a certain number of times then stop then maybe that's something that's going on inside all of our bodies and that's something that's driving the aging process but it's only in the last sort of 10 or 20 years we've really started to get a handle on what exactly they do so they've been sort of suspected for that reason for a long time and they've also been suspected because we noticed that these senescent cells they seem to be sort of loitering suspiciously in the vicinity of various age-related problems so things like cancer you often find a lot of senescent cells around there heart disease even forms of neurodegeneration senescent cells are sort of a smoking gun but the question is you know are they causally related or are they just sort of coming along for the ride for some reason and the most exciting evidence we've actually got uh, to suggest that they are causal is that we can now do something about them so in the last sort of 10 years or so we've come up with ways to 
remove these aged senescent cells and leave the rest of the cells in the body intact. And so in 2018, there was an experiment done in mice where they gave them a cocktail of drugs called desatinib and quercetin. So desatinib is just a chemo drug and quercetin is a flavanol. So it's often taken as a supplement. It's a, a compound found in fruit and veg. And the scientists have done a, basically done a bunch of experiments and found that this combination is the most effective at killing senescent cells while not killing other cells. And they gave it to mice that were quite late in life. So these mice are 24 months old. Mice obviously have a much shorter lifespan than people. So that's roughly equivalent to sort of 70 years old in human years. And what they found was the mice basically got biologically younger. So they found that they lived a bit longer, which is a good start, but they weren't sort of staggering along geriatric and just sort of drawing out that late part of life. What they found was they were healthier too. So they got less cancer, they got less heart disease, they got fewer cataracts. There are a whole range of age-related conditions that are impacted. But they weren't just healthier in the disease sense, they were less frail. I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Steele, the author of Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. Our interview will continue after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, advances in diagnosing and treating kidney disease from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. And Dr. Lucy Jones cautions us to understand the importance of how we respond to natural disasters. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Steele, the author of Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. We'd just been talking about what happened when scientists gave youthful mouse cells to older mice. But they weren't just healthier in the disease sense. They were less frail. They uh, could run further and faster on a little mousy treadmill that they use in these experiments. They can dangle off a wire for longer. There are all these kinds of things. They sort of take the mice down to the gym, basically, to measure various dis- different aspects of their physical performance. Um, the mice seem to be cognitively younger. So if you put a young mouse in a maze, in a new environment, it'll find this sort of fascinating and explore. Whereas the older mice, they tend to be less exploratory. It might be a cognitive thing. It's probably a little bit because they're just you know, a bit more frail and it's a bit harder work as well, a bit more anxious, perhaps. 
But if you uh, give mice these senolytic drugs that kill the senescent cells, they rejuvenate some of that youthful curiosity. And finally, these animals, they just look fantastic. They've got, you know, thicker, uh, less gray fur. They've got plumper skin. Again, even to my sort of untrained computational eyes, you can see the difference. It's night and day between these animals that have had the treatment and the animals that are the same age that haven't. And so, you know, what this means is that these senescent cells seem to be a smoking gun behind many, perhaps even all of the changes that we experience as we age. And by getting rid of them, you don't just live longer. You don't just get less disease. You're not just less frail. You're not just improved cognitively you actually look cosmetically better as well if you're a mouse. And so the, you know, the really exciting thing is, can we get this idea from the lab bench where we can make mice effectively younger? Can we start doing that in people? And the good news is, hopefully we can. So we've already got 20 or 30 companies trying, uh, basically in clinical trials, you know, they're actually doing this stuff in people to try and get these senolytic drugs from something that works in the lab in mice to something that works in human beings. So I'm really excited that this could be the first of these hallmarks that we can address in humans and actually start to, you know, in a very principled way, intervene in the aging process. Now, these clinical trials, what countries are they in? A lot of it's going on in the U.S. Actually, so quite oh, a lot thank of goodness! New that was yes. really the point. <laughs> you're in, <laughs> the you're in you're London now. <laughs> so the, um, the the way that this is working is they're currently doing clinical trials for diseases where we know senescent cells to be a problem. And if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, I, I thought the whole point of this was that we could address the aging process and sort of get in there before those diseases start, that is the long-term goal. But in the short term, as you sort of mentioned earlier, the FDA aren't currently in a position to approve a drug for aging, sort of writ large, the whole collection of age changes and also those trials are much harder to do so imagine you're um, doing a senolytic trial uh, there are people doing trials for arthritis in the knee there are trials for age-related macular degeneration which is a, a form of degeneration that occurs in the back of the eye and it's the biggest cause of blindness in older people and this is a much quicker thing to sort of get a yes or no answer on you can inject your senolytic drug or whatever it is you can um you know, watch to see if the number of senescent cells in that region decreases and you can see if people's arthritis or their eyes or their whatever gets better. So it's a very sort of short-term clinical trial and easy to understand endpoint. Whereas if you want to measure something like aging, you might have to give a far, far larger number of people the drugs over a far, far longer period of time. And the other issue with this is, um, you know, at the end of the day, these are experimental drugs. I'm very, very excited by the results in mice, but we know that so many exciting results in mice haven't translated into exciting results in people. And so you want to be giving these drugs to people who perhaps they've got a condition that's quite hard to treat or they've got something that's very painful or difficult to live with and so they're willing to take a bit of a risk on an experimental treatment the hope is that firstly we want these drugs to work obviously we want them to be effective but secondly and perhaps more importantly from an aging point of view we want them to be safe if there are no serious side effects in people taking these for specific uh, you know problematic conditions then we could imagine rolling them out more widely and so for example we know that heart disease can be driven by senescent cells so maybe people who've got advanced heart disease you know we've got ways to treat that already so they're not quite so keen to try new experimental therapy but if there's one that's been proven to be effective in another context and crucially is safe we could start giving it to those people and then if it's safe and effective for those people maybe we could eventually start getting to the point where you go oh you know there's nothing quote unquote wrong with you as, as far as a sort of 2021 doctor would diagnose but you've lived 50 or 60 years that's long enough to have accumulated enough of these senescent cells that we know that we can clear them out and sort of get in there and prevent these illnesses before they start by addressing the hallmarks of aging and slowing aging overall. There's so much to talk about, all the research that's gone on, and I'm just hoping that you will come back and talk about all of it at another time because it's that much. <laughs> it's that oh, much going yeah, it's just, on. It's incredible. It's really incredible. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to talk about, kind of getting back to 
signs of aging because mm-hmm. we've had to like hang on to telomeres. We've had to hang on to, you know, some of the internal biology that not everybody is all that familiar with. Um, but something you're familiar with is your gut microbiome. Mm. And you write, we can determine someone's age to within four years or so based on the relative proportions of different bugs in their guts. Yeah, exactly. You could have knocked me over, Andrew. <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. And this is one of the things that's really emerged in the last few years. So I based my hallmarks um, on, you know, I'm not going to claim I invented all this myself. It's based on a 2013 paper of the same name, the Hallmarks of Aging. And in their paper, they've only got nine. And actually, the, one of the ones, that, so I added um, the microbiome. And that's just because the emerging evidence since that paper was published in 2013 has really, really shown us that the gut microbiome almost certainly has something to do with the aging process. There's always this question of, is it a correlation or is it causal? And something that scientists are starting to unpick but it's really looking like you know not only is it causal but we can intervene and hopefully improve people's gut microbiomes and do something about the aging process at the same time and the experiment that really excited me about this is one that's done in a a, a tiny and slightly unusual organism called a turquoise killifish so you know a lot of people know that mice and rats are used in the lab but these killifish they're this um this fish species that lives in ephemeral ponds in africa primarily and what that means is that these ponds they they appear in the wet season and then they last for a few months maybe and then they just evaporate and dry out in the dry season and so these fish have to complete their whole life cycle in those that few month long period and that means their maximum lifespan is about four months and that's actually good news if you're an aging research because you don't want to be sitting around for you know 70 or 80 years if your experiments are happening in humans but the good thing about the killifish is although they've got this much shorter lifespan they're still vertebrates they're animals with a backbone so they're quite genetically similar to us obviously they're not hugely you know they're not as closely related as a monkey or a mouse but they're still similar and they've also got a complex gut microbiome you know quite similar to one that you might find in us so what they did was they got these killifish and they waited until they were a couple of months old so that's sort of middle age for a killifish then they cleared out their whole gut microbiome biome by giving them a really strong cocktail of antibiotics and what they found was that if they replaced that microbiome with a microbiome of younger fish they again effectively made the fish biologically younger they lived a bit longer with that more youthful microbiome and they um they didn't do the sort of same detailed set of uh, you know treadmill and hanging off a wire experiments but they did <laughs> hard find on the fish, fish hard to do with fish <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah much trickier they found that those fish darted around in the tank more often than the fish that hadn't been given the treatment which is a sort of fishy proxy for delayed frailty so what this seems to suggest is that you know maybe we could give what's called a microbiome transplant which is effectively what these fish had and then we could use that to slow down the aging process and this isn't some sort of wild you know never tested before idea we already use these microbiome transplants to treat people with a bacterial infection called c difficile which is a very nasty sort of form of effectively food poisoning and if you give people a healthy microbiome it can help to you give them a transplant of a microbiome from someone who's got a healthy microbiome then those healthy gut bacteria can overwhelm the c diff and bring their gut sort of back into balance effectively and so you know the question is could we somehow either collect the microbiomes from healthy young people or understand the combinations of bacteria that are found in them and use that as another way to intervene and you know slow reverse aging in older people well obviously andrew you could go on for hours and i wish i had more time (laughs) but thank you so much and i do hope you'll come back and see us again thank you very much for having me it's a fascinating subject so i'll happily as you say uh, go on about it for as long as i'm able (laughs) my guest today is dr andrew Steele. he's here today with ageless The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. It's published by Doubleday. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. 
while the latest medical news is the implantation of a genetically modified pig's heart into a human. It is part of a larger effort to treat disease organs. Given the many people who suffer from kidney disease and with so many people subjected to long wait lists for transplantation, I asked Dr. Daniel Kraft, the chief correspondent for Tech Nation Health, are we making any real progress in this area? Well, yes. Uh, number one, we want to prevent folks from needing kidney transplants or organ transplants in the in the first place. But inevitably, uh, many patients uh, need them, and some die waiting to get that kidney, liver, heart, or beyond. And one really fascinating area that's starting to become science fiction turns to reality is the idea of xenotransplantation, which means the process of grafting or transplanting an organ or a tissue from a different species. Um, and, you know, ideally that species uh, doesn't have to look exactly like us, but have organs that are similar size and function. And one species that's quite close uh, in size and function is uh, is the, the, the pig, the porcine world. And what's been exciting, you know, this has been worked on for many, many years, is the ability to, to humanize a pig uh, not obviously make the pig look human or act human, but to take some of the biology of uh, of the organ or cells, make them a little more human. For example, some of the sugars that are live on top of of, of kidney cells on a, on a pig are rejected, easily rejected by the immune system of humans to modify those using genetic engineering and to then use those more humanized pig organs to help save the life of a human. And just uh, this fall this of, of 2021, the first successful xenotransplantation of a pig kidney uh, into a human was performed and where that, that organ uh, looked to, to function in a normal way, just like a, a kidney transplanted from a, a living donor or a, a, or a recently deceased donor. So that's really exciting. It's a bit of a, a watershed moment and a lot of work from a lot of folks uh, in basic science to immunology to, to, to cellular genetic engineering have, have gone into that. And you know, if you're waiting for a kidney and, and you're not getting one, it, it might not be kosher, but I think you'll take that that humanized uh, xenotransplantation organ from from a pig. Now, as I recall, xenotransplantation doesn't start with the letter Z. It starts with the letter X. <laughs> so if you're looking, if you're looking <laughs> so it up, if you're googling, <laughs> X C N O transplantation. Um, and you know, this is sort of this advent now of this convergence of different tools and technologies. You know, it took uh, things like CRISPR, which you've talked about previously, and many of your guests have, that to, to enable faster, better forms of doing genetic modification. Uh, it takes, you know, uh, uh, you know, very forward-thinking uh, biotech executives to to push these things forward. It doesn't can't always happen in the academic lab. Uh, one example who who was uh, been working and helped this breakthrough happen is Martin. Rothblatt, who uh, is an incredible uh, you know, entrepreneur, started Sirius Satellite Radio, but when her daughter had a particularly difficult pulmonary disease, worked on developing artificial lungs to now artificial kidneys and has worked with incredible uh, engineers like Dean Kamen and his team. And that helped enable uh, this work uh, that resulted in this transplant uh, in, in 2021 that was done by a team in New York in the surgical in the surgical. Uh, OR. So lots of folks coming together to, to enable this. The hope in the future is that you don't need to replace a kidney. You can regenerate it in vivo uh, or, or never need that kidney transplant at all because you picked up that, that kidney disease super early. So we know that patients who have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, 
and or hypertension are at much higher risk of, of developing uh, kidney disease. It starts early and then progresses to complete renal failure. We're at the point where folks need dialysis. There's been an evolution of dialysis technology, dialysis technology. We don't have to go into a hospital or clinic and get dialysis you know, every three days, but can start to do that at home. There's even uh, groups working on wearable dialysis uh, or sort of now even blended biology and engineering to create an artificial kidney that's doesn't, it's not a full organ. It's sort of machine meets cells that's been developed through a, through a project called Kidney X, uh, kind of a, a, an XPRIZE uh, type platform for developing new solutions for kidneys. So it's an exciting time across the kidney space, but still prevention is worth a pound of cure. And early diagnosis is absolutely key. Well, one early way to find signs of early kidney problems is looking at your pee, right? Uh, doing a urinalysis. Uh, many folks who are at risk still don't do their annual urinalysis and don't look at the protein creatinine ratio. Um, full disclosure, I'm on the board of an interesting company called Healthy.io, healthy.io, that enables your smartphone to do your urinalysis. You do your urine donation at home, you dip a urine dipstick, you take a picture with a smartphone camera and an app, and it does the urinalysis and can determine whether you have a urinary tract infection or whether you have signs of, of early uh, kidney disease. And that uh, is being rolled out in the United Kingdom under NHS and now in some of the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield plans in the United States. And we'll see this as a, an example of an easy way to use digital health technologies to pick up early signs of renal disease when you can do something about it. So um, lots of technologies from digital uh, to uh, genetics, uh, to artificial kidneys, to xenotransplanted kidneys are going to hopefully be game changers across the field of kidney care and nephrology. Well, I'm greatly relieved about your description of how to test your your urine with uh, your cell phone or your smartphone, because uh, I initially had a different picture. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, it, it's it's a uh, you know it's an easy test to do to dip your urine or take your urine and drop it off in a lab. But many folks don't do that. If you just get in the mail a little kit uh, with a urine dipstick and a little uh, place to pee and, and an app, uh, it makes it much easier. Uh, you know, well more than fifty percent of folks would do this when before it may be less than ten percent. And even the American Kidney Foundation uh, has now run a campaign to help identify these folks uh, who who we can identify with chronic kidney disease at, at sort of stage one rather than stage three or stage four. And because it's so expensive and high mortality and high morbidity, once you have full-on kidney failure where you need dialysis or a transplant, it, it makes sense to spend a little bit of money on these proactive measures to do screening and, and early treatment. Um, and for folks to know, many you might be listening, you might have hypertension or diabetes, that you should make sure your primary care doctor or your kidney doctor, your nephrologist, has has uh, checked your urine on a, on a regular basis to, to see where you are and help uh, mitigate progression. I have to say that we've seen so much of this now. Uh, Binax uh, has the 15-minute uh, COVID test that you can buy at any pharmacy. Uh, we have this kind of a kidney test from Healthy Now. Uh I, people are really being being able to do uh, lab tests in their home, and I think this has a has some real advantage as opposed to getting involved in the total uh, medical system to do such things. Absolutely, it's empowering each of us to be engaged with our own health, whether it's doing a COVID test or you know home based tests for cholesterol, uh, for hemoglobin A one C, for diabetics. You can now obviously track your vitals with a connected blood pressure cuff or, or sooner next generation wearables and smartwatches will do non-invasive blood sugar and blood pressure. And, you know, COVID has been a catalyst for developing home-based rapid 
tests, but those sorts of rapid antigen and, and even PCR tests at home will become platforms for other infectious diseases and non-infectious diseases. Um, I helped um, run an XPRIZE, a $6 billion XPRIZE, in collaboration with Open COVID Screen, led by Jeff Huber and others, to uh, develop new COVID tests. And a lot of those platforms, again, are going to be very exciting and open up new ways of doing home diagnostics for everything from kidney disease uh, and beyond. And it's going to go beyond just blood-based or urine tests. We can use, as we've talked about in prior episodes here, you know, voice as a biomarker or how we type on our smartphones can be indicative, indicative of, of our risk for neurologic diseases or uh, psychologic disease. So lots of new ways of testing coming to the home. Uh, and it's going to be part of our new age of, of proactive, continuous and personalized health care, not just sick care. Thanks so much for coming in, Daniel. Thanks, Mara. And I would encourage all the listeners out there to see what kind of home diagnostics you can do yourself and connect those tests with your own healthcare systems and providers to help you know, catalyze this already present but accelerating future of health diagnostics and medicine. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. The FDA has not approved either the genetically modified pig heart or pig kidney for transplantation purposes. The efforts to date have been approved for singular experimental purposes only. It should be noted, however, that in December 2020, the FDA did approve an intentional genetic process in a line of domestic pigs, the so-called GALSAFE pigs, for potential use as human food and therapeutic treatments. The genetic modification removed particular sugars on the surface of the pig cell, which are believed to be involved in transplant rejection, as well as in mild to severe allergic reactions to the consumption of red meat. There will be many steps and much development to be done before such transplants will be approved for general use. More information is available at fda.gov. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. This past Saturday, January 15th, 2022, residents from San Diego to Los Angeles to San Francisco and up the coast to Oregon, Washington, and up through British Columbia all woke up to their first ever tsunami warning. The result of an underwater volcanic eruption near Tonga in the South Pacific. Similar warnings were issued to New Zealand and Japan, among others in the Pacific Rim. But could it be true? A tsunami in California? We all rushed to the Internet. How could an eruption some 5,000 miles away affect us here? And yes, the California coast has been hit by tsunamis some five times due to underwater earthquakes beginning in the year 1700, and it delivered impact as far as Japan. With the East Coast currently being pummeled by snow and ice, and all of us two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, this is one more part of our uncertain times. The immediate impact of a tsunami wave could be measured in wave height, distance inland, damage to buildings, and more. The long-term impacts are more difficult to understand. In 2018, I spoke with Dr. Lucy Jones, a former seismologist with the USGS, about her book, The Big Ones, How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us. 
Many people are unaware that the biggest disaster in European history is an earthquake. We estimate somewhere between eight and a half and nine, so a very, very large earthquake offshore from Portugal and created a big tsunami. Uh, so it was it was a devastating earthquake. Have, have you ever thought about it, that Portugal was a major colonial power? You know, they had Brazil and all this, and then they sort of disappear from history. You know, they become a minor country. A lot of it was because of, of this event that destroyed so much of the country. Uh, it also had huge philosophical implications uh, because it happened on the morning of All Saints Day, which in a Catholic country like Portugal is what's called a holy day of obligation. Everybody's required to go to church. And it happened at 940 in the morning at the height of the mass in the the biggest service of the day. Uh, At the time, Western society just accepted that earthquakes were God's wrath. You know, Psalm 18 says the mountains shook because of God's anger. We have accepted that for a, a very long time. And it, it's actually sort of interesting. Every culture says, well, there's something gods are doing, right? But in the Jewish tradition, they said, no, this is not just capricious gods you got in the way. God's good. God's somebody you can make a covenant with. So if he hits you with a disaster, it must be your fault. And we developed this very large tradition of divine retribution. Well, how do you say this when you have an event that happens in the middle of the church services, collapses all of the churches, kills all the faithful, and basically spares the prostitutes in the wooden brothels up on the hill. So it was a pretty significant philosophical conundrum. Uh, Voltaire wrote a very famous poem on the Lisbon disaster that was published a month later, saying, you know, how can you believe in a God that would would kill the babes in their mother's arms? Um, Big philosophical debates that went on because of this. Rousseau said, you can't reject God in that way. Clearly, people, you know, we should be naturalists, and it's that mistake of trying to live in cities. And and besides, we don't know what worse fate they were spared. And you got to wonder what Rousseau thought of cities, that the Lisbon earthquake is the lesser fate. <laughs> so you've got all of this going on, but it's at the time, it's really only the philosophers that got into the debate. To the Catholics, it was obvious they had not been fervent enough in their protection of the true faith. The Protestants said, what more proof do we need that, you know, the Inquisition is the devil's work and God has rejected them. So it's a, it was a big issue in European Western civilization. It's the beginning of the first physical science studies of earthquakes, because it's at the beginning of the Great Enlightenment. And it just, to the intellectuals, it's like, I really can't figure out why God did this. And they started looking for physical causes. And if you have been to to Lisbon, you know that it's sort of a half valley that's sort of tucked up against the water so that a tsunami would fill it up like a bowl. And and it did. So the, the tsunami came up the river. The river's like a mile wide at that point. And the descriptions of the tsunami, we have some pr- contemporaneous descriptions of it. It's really quite astonishing. And it clearly swept through the lower part of town, basically destroyed the city. One of the other things that's really interesting about it is the first case of a good uh, central government response So the prime minister at the time was very much in control. The king was sort of didn't really care about this stuff, even though he had absolute power. There's a story that the prime minister met up with the king after the event. And the king is like, what do we do about this divine retribution? And and, uh, the, the prime minister just said, sire, we bury the dead and feed the living. 
which has got to be the most succinct statement of what an emergency manager does <laughs> that we've ever seen. And he proceeded to carry it off well, gained huge political power because of it. And in fact, has so increased his standing, he was able to uh, end the Inquisition and get the Jesuits out of, of Lisbon with only four, within only four years after the event. So much in this book, including what we could do about it individually and, and as mm. societies. Uh, but I think that one of the biggest takeaways for me is that disasters are more than the moment at which they happen, and they don't end because the media stopped covering them. That's right. The recovery is what really determines what we're going to be. And our fear of randomness keeps us focused on that moment. This is like my my experience of being the seismological voice after earthquakes. There was a point at which I started going, why are you talking to me anyway? I give the earthquake a name or a fault. How does that help you rebuild your house? And in a practical sense, it doesn't. And what I came to understand through this experience was that I was performing the same role as the shaman did. I gave it a name, I gave it a number, I gave it a fault, and I said, somebody understands this, and it's less scary. Because one of the other things that I found is that there's a, there's a bunch of us that do this, a lot of the, all the seismologists are out there after the event, but the women were remembered and the men weren't. And it's like, you know, you feel better when mommy tells you it's okay. And somehow we were more reassuring. It was the science, but it was in a comforting tone. And I, you can't again, explain it, but you can kind of explain it. I can kind of explain it. I watched this, and I realized that when we talked about scientific uncertainty, let's use this opportunity to explain the scientific method, we tended to increase the fear. People were not ready to hear that right after the earthquake. A month later, Yes. Right after the earthquake, they wanted certainty. They wanted somebody to say it was okay, it was understood, it's going to be controlled. And I saw this as our real fear of randomness. And then once you get through that moment, all of the attention disappears. But in fact, what really defines whether or not your city is here later is how you recover from that. And as I looked at all these different disasters, I saw cases like the Lisbon earthquake, where the government handled it extremely well. Whereas if you look at New Orleans, where they really struggled in their response for a, a wide variety of reasons, uh, we are now out, at, you know, 12 years after, 13 years after the hurricane, and the population is still down by one third. And so the consequences go on for a very long time, and it's how you respond. And, and how you respond as a community that really controls a lot of what we are. You know, the engineers like to say that uh, systems fail where they're already weak. And it's easy to see that physically, the crevasse in the levee where you already had some damage or the building coming down where it had been poorly constructed or it had been repaired from a fire. But it applies to social systems as well. And we see failure in our social systems where we are already struggling. Former U.S. seismologist Dr. Lucy Jones is the author of The Big Ones, How Natural Disasters Have Shaped Us. It's published by Doubleday. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.